our most gracious God and Father, our shepherd. We come to you today for nourishment, that you would nourish our souls. We come to you as people who lack wisdom and lack understanding, and we need your word. And so we pray that by the power of the Spirit working in conjunction with the study of your word, grow us in wisdom, grow us in understanding, grow us in conviction, grow us in Christ-likeness, that we may more and more reflect your character in order that we may more glorify Christ in our lives. Please bless this time by not only giving us understanding of the text, but by applying it to our lives. We ask that the Spirit would make this clear to us, how this relates to our lives, exactly where we are, in order that we may be strengthened for the journey, strengthened in our sanctification, strengthened in our confidence in the sureness of your promises and that Christ may be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to the 50th and final chapter of Genesis. Um, We'll be looking at verses uh, 15 to 26 today. You know, one of the things I've, I've gotten into the habit of doing when I, when I read and when I study the Bible is just kind of mentally make a note of how much space, how much ink, if you will, is devoted to telling us something, especially when you're reading historical narrative, uh, which the book of Genesis most certainly is. I mean, if you think about it, at any given time in history, uh, there, there are just a, a kajillion things going on uh, somewhere in some way. And so you have to ask, why is the biblical author zeroing in on this? And you would think that there's some kind of correlation between how important it is and how much ink is spilled uh, telling us about it. Uh, understanding that there is not one single word in Scripture that is ever wasted. God's word never returns to him void. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, teaching, training in righteousness. And so with that in mind, I think there's something to be said for, for how much space or how much ink is devoted to telling us certain things. So with that in mind, if you can believe it, we've spent almost half of the entire study of Genesis looking at the life of Jacob. Uh, we were actually introduced to Jacob all the way back in chapter 25, uh, and here we are now. We're in chapter 50. Uh, and, and we might be tempted to think that, uh, you know, the, the previous dozen or, or so chapters were really about Joseph, uh, and, and I, I think it's fair to say that Joseph was at least a main character, uh, but this section of the text was introduced by Moses telling us that this is about the house of Israel. Uh, you know, th- this is about Jacob. Um, this, this section, but 
that portion of the text has actually come to a close as Jacob has breathed his final breath and he has been gathered to his people to use the euphemism for death that Moses used at the end of chapter 49. And truthfully, I, I can't know um, for sure why God would uh, devote so much ink, so much space to the life of Jacob. Uh, I think it probably has a lot to do with the fact that uh, he was renamed Israel, and that that has a lot of significance, but I also can't rule out the possibility that that maybe so much time was devoted to Jacob because we can, um, or, or at least we should, be able to relate to all the struggles that Jacob faced on an ongoing basis, all the struggles he faced in terms of trusting God, believing that God would be faithful to his promises. And yet when all was said and done, by the end of his life, Jacob wasn't the swindler that he was when we were introduced to him so long ago. No, he, he was a very godly man by the end of his life. And his growth and his great faith were actually a testimony to the saving power of God. It's a picture of how God does not just leave us how we are, but he is working in all things to conform us to the image of Christ. Whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it at the time or not. And so his picture, his life is a picture of God's grace working in the believer to transform the believer and to put to death the sinful desires and temptations and affections that ensnare us all and prevent us from living fully for the glory of God. Now, I think it actually would have been pretty appropriate for Moses to have, uh, to have ended the book of Genesis uh, with the burial of Jacob. It would be fair if, if that's where the book had concluded. We saw um, the faithfulness of his sons to partake of a, what was really a foreshadowing, a mini exodus, if you will, back to Canaan where they buried Israel. They buried Jacob in the cave that his parents were buried in and his grandparents were buried in, which was a sign of their faith in God's promises. But I found myself asking, why didn't we just end the book there? Why didn't we just end the book with the, with the burial of Jacob back in Canaan? And the answer, I think, is probably simple enough. Uh, the people for whom Moses wrote this account would probably wonder whatever became of Joseph. After all, Joseph is, uh, I, I would say, um, one of the most likable characters in all of the Bible, um, at least in the Old Testament. But we should also remember that when Moses wrote this, uh, the Israelites were bringing the bones of Joseph back to Canaan. And so they're getting the full story of, of who this was and how his life ended. So today we'll be concluding our study of Genesis by looking at verses 15 to 26 of the final chapter, chapter 50. Uh, and, and, and this is really uh, there to tell us what became of, uh, of Joseph after the death of Jacob and, and how it serves as kind of a transition to the book of Exodus, uh, keeping in mind that, these, uh, that the first five books of the Bible were all one document, that, were, that they were all together. So there's a transition uh, that takes place here. But the point of our passage today, the point of this final passage of Genesis is very simple. It's actually the, the, the theme of the entire book of Genesis. It's that because God is sovereign over time and history, God's people should increasingly reflect godly character. I'll say it again. Because God is sovereign 
over time and history, God's people should increasingly reflect godly character. And Jacob's life was certainly a, a testament to that, uh, a testimony to that principle. But Joseph also, he's, he's no exception. Uh, by the grace of God, he grew in grace and godliness himself. And, and that might sound kind of weird. That might be a little bit maybe hard to believe because he's always seemed like such a godly person since we were first introduced to him. And he has been a very godly person since we were introduced to him. But we have to keep in mind that he's become a very, very powerful man. And the temptations that he faced, that he must have faced, to stray from the Lord in the, in the position that he had over this pagan nation, um, especially in the wake of his father's death, are probably greater than we could even imagine. And yet, like all who call on the name of the Lord, even though he was a godly man, he was still a work in progress, just like every one of us until the day he died. So in verse 14, we saw that Joseph returned to Egypt uh, after his father's burial, and there's a gap of time that takes place after that. Uh, between verses 14 and 15, there's, there's some amount of time, but we don't know exactly how much. It doesn't seem as though it would be a whole lot of time. But as we start verse 15, as we start the passage that we're going to, to be looking at today, they're back in Egypt. And uh, so in this passage, we're going to continue and conclude our study of Genesis. So let's start by looking at verses 15 to 18. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. This is actually kind of tragic, if you think about it, because the brothers are wrestling with the weight of a guilty conscience. And the way it works usually is that when you have a guilty conscience, you can bear it for a while, and you can either become numb to it, or it becomes too much. The weight of a guilty conscience is too much for anyone to bear. And, and people have different ways of, of dealing uh, with such uh, an, an unbearable weight. You know, maybe they learn to blame others. There's a lot of that these days. Blaming others or blaming your environment or, or, or blaming uh, systematic institutional things that, that you think might have, um, sh- should have made your life turn out better. Or, or, or maybe they, they say that you know, you're a, they're a product of their environment, or they, maybe they convince themselves that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. There, there's a lot of that too. Um, or, or maybe they start questioning whether anything is really objectively immoral or not. 
Or if it's all just a bunch of social constructs, you know, th- things that we've invented to help us understand our world, but really they're not objective, they're subjective, they're constantly changing, and by the way, this is exactly where our culture is today. And the reason is, the conscience cannot bear the weight of guilt for long. It has to deal with it in one way or another. And the easiest way that our culture has found is just to say there's really no such thing as right or wrong. But the brothers do have a guilty conscience. Apparently all of them have a guilty conscience. In fact, they've had to bear this weight of a guilty conscience for a lot of years now, decades, decades. And and let's add this, and unnecessarily so. They didn't need to bear this weight. And not only did they not need to bear this weight, they they certainly didn't need to bear it for, for this long. And the guilt that they had refused to let go of caused them to live in a state of perpetual fear. Unfounded fear, irrational fear, fear that that could and should have, uh, have no root from which to grow. It was rooted in their imaginations. It wasn't rooted in reality. But so often, the more we dwell about something, dwell on something and start thinking about something and letting our imagination go wild, the more we think that that's what reality is. But we saw reality. We saw reality back in chapter 45, verse 5, when Joseph was reconciled to his brothers. And he said this to them. He said, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here to preserve life. See, Joseph was able to forgive them because he saw that this was all somehow in accordance with God's plans. That God was using what the brothers had done to save their lives. And one of the things, if not the thing, that I love the most about Joseph is the fact that he had such a high view of God's sovereignty. When I say that, I mean a low view of God's sovereignty would be to say, well, God isn't really in control of anything, and a high view of God's sovereignty acknowledges that God is in control of everything. Even when life isn't fair, God is in control. And it was that confidence that kept him anchored throughout some of the the trials and the storms and tribulations that were harder, uh, more trying, uh, more cruel than things that you and I have probably been through. And it was this high view of God's sovereignty that allowed him, that caused him, that enabled him to forgive his brothers freely. They didn't even ask for it. But he was able to do it before he even said these words to them because he had this high view of God's sovereignty. In fact, to forgive them long before they were even reconciled was a sign of God's grace working in the heart of Joseph. But even though Joseph had clearly forgiven them, and this is decades prior to the moment that we're at now in our text, even though he had been able to forgive them as he had been forgiven by God. And even though he had shown them mercy as he had been shown great mercy by God, the brothers nevertheless continued to carry a fear of Joseph around with them. And we see what their fear has been. For, for about 20 years now, they feared that the only reason that Joseph hadn't killed them or enslaved them or sought, wrath, you know, sought to, to execute wrath or vengeance upon them was the fact that their father Jacob was still alive. And it wouldn't have pleased him. 
But now that Jacob is dead, they're thinking, what's going to keep Joseph from unleashing his wrath on us? What's, what's going to restrain Joseph from hurting us, from harming us, from, from, from getting even with us? And so we're reminded of the time when their father, Jacob, had to run for his life for fear that his brother would seek revenge on him for stealing the blessing of the father. Uh, Remember, Esau had vowed to wait until their father Isaac died, and then he was going to seek revenge upon Jacob as soon as Isaac was dead. So maybe as far as the brothers are concerned, or what they're thinking is that, you know, it's hard to believe that someone that they had committed such evil against would ever have the capacity to forgive them. They're thinking, you know, maybe Joseph's graciousness all along was just a show that he was putting on for the sake of keeping dad happy. These are their fears. And I'm convinced that at least part of the reason that the brothers have such a guilty conscience at this point is because while it's true that Joseph forgave them, and while they should have known that Joseph had forgiven them, they had never confessed their sin, and they had never asked Joseph to forgive them. They knew. They knew exactly how much hatred they had toward Joseph and how that hatred had driven them, had motivated them to plot the murder of Joseph. It was a hatred that was only held back a little bit by their, by their thought that, you know, hey, instead of just killing him, we can, we can make a little, little bit of money on selling him. And so they decided to sell him into slavery instead. But, but they still lived with the sounds of the screams of Joseph echoing in their ears, the panic in his voice when he begged them to let him go. And they couldn't believe that the same man that they had shown such incredible hatred toward could extend such love and such kindness and such mercy and such grace to them now. And aren't our hearts so often so inclined to be the same way toward God? So slow to fully accept, to really fully accept, not just intellectually, but in our hearts to believe that God has freely given us this gift of grace and forgiveness. I think it's clear that this is one of the purposes of confessing our sin. He does, Jesus doesn't need you to confess it. He knows you did it. It's for our sake that we confess sin. See, all sin is ultimately against the Lord. And to unburden our conscience, the solution for the Christian is to confess our sin to the Lord, remembering his promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, we, sh- we should remember that biblically, to confess is not just admitting that you did it. That, that is not a biblical confession. Biblically, to confess, uh, the, the Greek word confess is actually a combination of two words, uh, meaning same word. 
So really what it means is you are bringing your will, your understanding into alignment with God's and what he has called sin, what he has called evil, you are saying you are correct, God. My, my understanding of what I have done is in alignment with yours. This is evil, this is sin, and I need forgiveness. And the parallel of this promise that we find in, in uh, verse nine is found two verses earlier where John wrote, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. For the Christian, for those who have put their faith in Christ, confession is the way that we begin walking in the light, and it's how we continue walking in the light because we constantly are bombarded by temptations to step out into the darkness, and we do it day after day after day. In fact, we don't walk perfectly in the light at any given time. It's only by grace that he brings us back into his light, that we recognize the light and the darkness. Confession is how we unload our consciences and enter back into fellowship. First with God, and secondly with one another. And without confession, biblical confession, calling our sin what it is according to what God calls it, the fullness of fellowship cannot be experienced. Friends, don't ever, ever allow your fellowship with the Lord or with his people to be stifled by a failure or a refusal to confess and receive forgiveness as the fellowship that Joseph and his brothers would have had was stifled because his brothers never confessed and never asked for forgiveness. It's exactly what we see here. They've been forgiven, but they haven't had their fellowship restored Because this guilty conscience that they've been carrying around for 20 years is an obstacle to the fellowship, the pure fellowship that they would have otherwise experienced. The brothers have just been harboring it and living in fear because of it. And so they send a message to Joseph. Notice, by the way, they they don't go directly to him, which they should have done. They could have done it. They're his brothers. They should have gone directly to him, but they send a messenger to to him, and they beg and they plead for him to forgive them. And in their, their plea here, in this message, they get some things extremely wrong, and they get some things very right, as we often all do. Praise the Lord for grace. So so what do they get wrong? Well, they claim that their father had instructed them to relay this message to Joseph. That at least appears to be false. It appears to be a lie. Uh, There's never any indication that Jacob had given them this instruction. Um, And and so if it is a lie, it, it appears to be a lie. And if it is, they are once again sinning against both Joseph and God for the sake of saving their own sins, so to speak. But there's no indication that Jacob ever said such a thing or that he even suspected that his sons would be in danger after his death of Joseph seeking revenge against his brothers. But they did do some good things and some right things here in this message as well. Look at the language they use in regard to their sin. Look at what they call it. They call it transgression. They call it sin. 
And they call it wrong. The, word, the Hebrew word wrong there doesn't just mean you know, mistaken. Like you, you, if you say two plus two is five, you know, you're wrong. Um, the, the, the word that gets translated as mistaken here, the most common uh, translation of this word is evil. And the second most common translation is wickedness. So keep, keep that in mind as you look at this word wrong, if you're looking at the NASB. Uh, that's how they translate it. But it really infers uh, evil and, wrong, uh, and wickedness. So what we see is that they're using strong language about what they had done. They're, they're not watering down or they're not playing down or minimizing what they've done at all, as so many in our age are so inclined to do. So many, when they talk about sin, they'll refer to sin in general as, you know, mistakes or um, mishaps or uh, failures or mess-ups or whatever. And, and I actually believe it's extremely harmful to euphemize sin in this way. When we euphemize something, we're trying to take the heat off of it. We're trying to take some of the weight off of it. I believe that when we call sin a mistake or a mess-up or, or, or a boo-boo or, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, we're downplaying the seriousness of it and we're trying to make it less of a weight on ourselves, on our own consciences. And that is not the way that you cleanse your conscience. That is not the way that you cleanse it. You do what the brothers did. You call it what it is. It's not just a mistake. Saying that, that two plus two is five is a mistake. Turning left when, you, you know, when, when you're going home today instead of turning right, that's a mistake. Call it what it is. It's sin. It's evil. It's wicked. And to their credit, the brothers do this. They own up to the fullness of their sin. They don't downplay it or minimize it at all. And upon receiving this message, we're not sure why, but Joseph breaks down in tears. I imagine it was like ripping open an old wound in Joseph's heart, and the emotion was just too much. Or maybe he reflected back on the fact that, you know, this is, this is 20 years old. We buried the hatchet 20 years ago, and my brothers haven't fully embraced me as a brother for these 20 years because they've been harboring so much guilt. All along, he, he recognizes that, that there's something that needs to be done here. He recognizes that his brothers aren't understanding the lengths and, and, and depths of the forgiveness that he had extended to them. And so their fellowship for 20 years has been affected. How could they think that Joseph had plans to harm them after all these years? And so for one reason or another, he was just overcome with emotion and he wept. And then his brothers come before him and they, they, they try to plead with them saying, we're, we're your servants, we're your slaves. And Joseph's response to his brothers is, this brings us to one of the most beautiful scenes, if not the most beautiful scene aside from uh, the, the cross uh, in, in all of scripture. I, I absolutely love this scene. And in this scene, we see as clearly as ever that because Joseph has an understanding that God is sovereign over time and history, he increasingly reflects God's character. Let's look at verses 19 to 21. It says, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, 
do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I just very quickly want to draw your attention to the, kind of the first and last words out of his mouth here. He begins by saying, do not be afraid. And in verse 21 there, he says it again, do not be afraid. So that, that's the gist of what he's trying to get at here. Everything that he says here is toward that end. The brothers, in one sense, that they do have good reason to fear, I suppose. What they had done to Joseph so many, so many years ago at this point was indeed horrible, and it was indeed evil. It was wicked. But on the other hand, they shouldn't have had a reason to fear because Joseph had forgiven them. The problem is that even after he expressed his forgiveness for them, they held on to the guilt. And holding on to the guilt allowed their imaginations to assume the worst. And so Joseph assures them that the forgiveness that he had extended to them and that he's been demonstrating to them for 20 plus years now wasn't just a show. They don't need to be afraid. They never needed to be afraid all along. And the first reason that they could be reassured and not be afraid was that Joseph had no intention of playing God. And when a person refuses to forgive somebody who sins against them, by the way, that is exactly what they are doing. They're playing God. I mean, this is Bible basics here, but people who have been forgiven by God should be quick to forgive others. People who have been shown the grace of God should be quick to show grace to others. People who have been shown love by God should be quick to show love to others. People who have been shown compassion and mercy We should be eager to show these things to other people because that's what we've been shown. And Joseph demonstrates godly character by knowing his place, knowing that he is not God and asking the rhetorical question, am I in God's place? He doesn't expect them to answer it. It's it's a question to say, I am not in God's place. So I'm sure that Joseph knew that he himself was a sinner. He knew the great sins that he himself had committed against God on a daily basis in the depths of his own heart. He knew it. Nobody was more aware of it than than he was. And yet he also knew that he was forgiven. He knew that God had shown him grace upon grace. So how could he not then, if he's been shown all this great grace, how could he not show grace to others? How could he not forgive even the most heinous and the most hateful sin against him? Because truthfully, it paled in comparison. The sins that have been committed against him paled in comparison to the daily sins that he committed against God. Here's the reality. I mean, unless you live in a cave somewhere all by yourself, you are going to be sinned against by someone. And you're going to sin against someone. And I don't know if there's any other place where that's more likely to happen than in the context of marriage. God in his wisdom designed that for our sanctification, he'd put two sinners under one roof to sanctify them both. And they would sin against one another repeatedly. And they'd learn to forgive and to show mercy and grace and restoring love despite the wrongdoings against one another. But the more you're around people, the greater the chances are that you'll be sinned against and the greater the chances are that you will sin against others. 
And I think Paul knew that. I'm sure that Paul knew that, which is why when he wrote to the Romans, who, by the way, were, were all a part of a, a thriving church community that could be torn apart very easily by division, by things like unforgiveness, he said this to them in Romans 12, 19. He said, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the reality is, yeah, Unless you live in a cave and you're completely isolated from people 24-7, you will be sinned against. But you're not God. Only God is God. Only God is, is capable of rightly judging the thoughts and the intentions of somebody who sins against you. So leave it to God to judge justly. To judge without partiality, that's what justice is, to not have partiality one way or the other. Leave it in his hands rather than carrying around a load of unforgiveness that will eventually become unbearable for you. Joseph knows that he's not in God's place and so he wouldn't dare uh, carry a desire for revenge or, or for vengeance around with him. That's the first reason that the brothers don't have to fear. Joseph knows that he's not God. And he knows that God will deal with people justly. Secondly, the brothers didn't need to fear because Joseph was able to see the big picture. And in seeing the big picture, he was able to discern the way that God had used the terrible and heinous evils that had been committed against Joseph to accomplish great, great good. He says, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And this gives us the single brightest reflection of the primary theme of Genesis. That God is sovereign over time in history. That God is good. And that his purposes cannot be thwarted. His purposes will be accomplished. Despite the evil intentions of man. The words that we see here. But God... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those words, but God, are some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. And we see them in, in various places over and over again. A, a dark, dark backdrop will be displayed only for the brilliant and majestic beauty of God's grace to be laid over it. And this way we see the beauty of God's grace as clearly and, as with, and with as much awe as we would a beautiful diamond on a black backdrop, drawing our attention not to the black backdrop, but to the beauty of the diamond itself. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts out by making a, a, a dark backdrop for us. He's talking about how we were born in sin, how we were, we were following the flesh, the devil, the world, being led by these things. We were children of wrath. This is the, the dark uh, backdrop. But then in verses 4 and 5, that thought gets interrupted by Paul exclaiming, but God, there are those words, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. See the contrast in those words, but God. 
In Romans 5, Paul's discussing how helpless we are in our situation to break free from sin and to break free from the penalty of sin, recognizing that the wage of sin is death. What are we going to do? He says in verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps the good man, uh, for the good man, someone would dare even to die. In other words, he's saying, if one would hardly die for somebody who's righteous, and, and we don't even have the right to count ourselves as being righteous in, in even the, the slightest degree. What hope could we possibly have that anybody would die for us? If it's rare that somebody would die for a righteous man and we're not righteous. But then he interrupts that thought again in verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Present ongoing tense demonstrates not demonstrated he demonstrates that his own his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the point here is that whenever we're confronted by the ugliness of sin whenever we're we're faced with the terrible reality of sin and the just consequences of sin that can all be dealt with and overcome with an understanding of God's greatness, with an understanding of God's sovereignty over time and history, and and the fact that his plan is to cause all things to work together for his glory and for the good of his people, for the good of those who belong to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think about it. Jesus could have said the same thing as he was on the cross. Think a little bit deeper about it. If you are in Christ Jesus, you too can say that whenever somebody sins against you, whenever life is unfair. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. All things. Romans 8.28 says all things, not just a few things, not just the good things, not just the bad things, all things. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. What a beautiful promise. What a refuge to hide ourselves in, to take refuge in when the storms of life arise. And this is the overarching theme of the entire book of Genesis. Think about it for a second. The book starts off with everything being good. Everything was perfect. Everything was just the way God had designed it to be. The way that he had intended it. And then in chapter 3, sin enters in and creation falls under the curse of sin. And it would be really easy to think, well, okay, the goodness in creation is gone. The future is grim. The chances of God's plans being fulfilled are slim to none. But then we see throughout this book that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is faithful, and that even the actions and the intentions of evil men cannot stop what God intends to do. And this flies, by the way, in the opposite direction of the notion that if you'll just uh, trust in God, everything uh, will, will go away. All, all the problems that you have will just go away. 
Just trust in God. When I was on vacation a couple weeks ago, this was one of the things that the pastor there said. I couldn't believe it. I was ready to run out at that point. It was really what he said. He said, if you just trust God, all your problems will go away. I think Joseph might beg to differ. I think Peter, who was crucified upside down, would beg to differ. I, I think all of the apostles, uh, with the exception of John, who were martyred in cruel fashion for their faith, would beg to differ. No, the testimony of Scripture of, of Genesis uh, included is not that if, you, if you'll just trust God, all your problems will go away. No, the testimony is that when you do have problems, and by the way, your problems might increase because you have an enemy who's seeking to make you stumble, but when, when you do have problems, when you do face hardships, when you do face trials, God is sovereign over every single one of them. And he's using them like a hot torch to burn off the dross in your life. He's using them to refine you and to grow you in Christ's likeness. God is sovereign over time and history. He's causing all things to work together for our growth in Christ's likeness. And this is why God's people increasingly reflect godly character. At least we should. We should. It's, by, it's entirely by God's sovereign, providential, ongoing grace working in the life of the believer. And I'm not sure that any character in Scripture other than Christ himself had a better understanding of God's sovereignty than Joseph. Man, Joseph had such a great view of God's sovereignty. Joseph saw how God used every single one of his hardships, not only for good, but for great good. You know, when I... Um, Two and a half years ago when I chose Genesis for our next study. Uh, when I chose this book to preach, I, I had no idea how badly I would need it. I had no idea how much I would need to develop a much deeper understanding, a much higher view of God's sovereignty. I had no idea that within a year of starting this study that my wife would spend weeks in a hospital with pancreatitis and pneumonia and sepsis, each of which can kill a person, and she had them all at the same time. Right in the middle of this study. And I see the grace of that. I am overwhelmed uh, at, at how providential this study was, this book was. Because you know what got me through that time? You know what got me from one day to the next? You know what allowed me to even sleep at night while my wife was dying in the hospital? It was having a fuller, deeper understanding of God's sovereignty and the fact that he is causing all things to work together for my growth in Christ's likeness. This very doctrine of God's sovereignty is what got me through. And so I urge you to embrace it in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, because as a doctrine, it will be the greatest comfort to you in the darkest and the most difficult times of your life. It will allow you to sleep at night in the midst of storms and trials like nothing else will. 
As, as it turns out, it was, it was God's providence that I would be preaching a book which, which focused so much on the one theme, the one doctrine that I personally needed more than any other, and I know in the lives of some of you, you needed it too. You needed it too. And so we should be thankful for this book. We, we, can, we can thank God for the testimony of, of Joseph, but also just for the, the way that this theme has permeated this entire study and the comfort that it's brought us in the midst of great hardships. But this incident, this encounter that Joseph has with his brothers where they ask for forgiveness finally, uh, was apparently the most significant thing that happened in Joseph's life after Jacob died. Because what follows uh, till the rest of, till the end of the of the chapter is basically a fast forward button. It's basically just a brief summary of the rest of Joseph's life. Let's look at verses twenty two to twenty six. It says, "Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived one hundred and ten years." Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So Jacob, uh, or Joseph, lived for 93 years in Egypt. Many, uh, if not most, of his life was spent in this position that he had gained, in this, power, uh, this position of great power and great influence. But we're, we're kind of told in a, in a roundabout way here, in a very summaristic way here, that it never went to his head, that he was faithful until the end. In fact, the author of Hebrews looks back on uh, Joseph's last words here as his greatest moment of faith. In other words, he never wavered, and his greatest moment of faith was right here on his deathbed. The power that he had, the influence that he had, it never went to his head. The understanding that he had of God's sovereignty kept him grounded. Not only did it keep him stable in hardships, but it also kept him humble when he was in a position in which he faced incredible temptation to exalt himself. And so his trials, because he had this view, this understanding of, of God's sovereignty that was so high, his trials never broke his heart and his successes never went to his head. The rest of the story of Joseph is, is basically he, he got old. But he experienced the blessing of having children who had children who had children with the understanding that children are a blessing. What a blessed life Joseph had. But eventually, the great enemy, death, came for him. The text doesn't tell us about his funeral or what the procession was like, but we can be sure that it was at least as big as his father's. Unlike Jacob, he doesn't request for his bones to immediately be brought back to Canaan. Instead, Joseph's final words were a mention of the future 
exodus out of Egypt. He knew that God was going to redeem his people, his offspring, the people, the generations that came after him. He knew that God was going to redeem them. His faith was so great even on his deathbed. But his bones could wait until that exodus. Until God came and let them know that the time was there for the exodus, his bones could just wait. And so Genesis, the book that began with the creation of all living things, the the book that tells us that creation has fallen and that death is an enemy that entered in as a consequence of sin, Genesis ends with the death of two beloved saints, Jacob in chapter 49 and Joseph in chapter 50. And that forces us to think back to think back to the garden when everything was exactly as God intended it, when there was no death. And yet Eve was tempted by the devil to defy God. Thinking that it would make her like God, she ate from the tree of good and evil knowledge only to bring a great curse upon creation. And rather than becoming like God, she and Adam became like Satan. They fell from grace. They were now inclined toward evil. They were not morally neutral. The human heart is not morally neutral. It is inclined towards sin. They didn't become like God. In this sense, they became like Satan. And while their eyes may have been opened in one sense, it was open to shame, but they were blinded in a spiritual sense. Eating from the tree that had been forbidden by God had catastrophic results. They're proof of the fact that one person's sin doesn't just affect themselves. It can affect who knows how far. By eating from this tree, they became like God, perhaps, but only in the sense that they felt like they had the right to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. But even that was only an illusion and a temporary one at that. To this day, it's only an illusion. Now, people might feel like they have the right to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil, but if that's the case with you, listen, the day is coming when God will show you how wrong you've been all along. And so I would urge you as we finish this study, do not be that person. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl who thinks that you can decide for yourself what's evil and what's good only to find on the day of judgment how wrong you were. My plea for you is that if you're living like that, repent. Repent, confess, look to and believe in Christ and receive forgiveness. Receive grace. Don't blame anything else for your sin. Don't blame society. Don't blame your upbringing. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame your environment. Don't blame uh, it on something that's been done to you. Take responsibility, full responsibility for your sins. Turn from them. Confess them openly to the Lord. And receive grace. And this isn't just a one and done type of thing that you do at the beginning of your Christian walk. This is a daily thing. This is a way of life. This is how we enter into and how we stay in fellowship with the Lord and with one another.
So no matter what you're faced with, only Christ, remember this, only Christ meets your two greatest needs. Number one, to have your sin taken from you. And number two, to have the righteousness of God transferred, imputed, credited to you that you may stand before him blameless one day. It's because God offers us forgiveness and the remission of sins through the death and shed blood of Christ that we do not need to feel hopeless about anything in life or when it comes to death. We don't walk in fear because we know, Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we have hope even in the face of death, just like Joseph did. We have hope even in the face of death because Jesus, who lived a sinless life and lived in accordance with the Father's will, died a sinner's death on behalf of all who will repent and trust in him. Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. He conquered death, and so we can know, we can have confidence that the grave is not final. The curse that Adam brought upon creation was so widespread. It was so great. But it won't last forever. It will not last indefinitely. God's word tells us in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us, us being those who have repented and trusted in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And it tells us that in the end, there will be a new heavens and a new earth that the redeemed will inherit. A place with no sin, a place with no death, no suffering, no loss. A place of eternal bliss. The Bible starts and ends in a garden. The final chapter of Revelation, Revelation 22, uh, gives us just the, the slightest glimpse. John writes this in verses 1 to 3. He says, Then he showed me a river, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On the other side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12, fruit, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Friends, God has amazing, unthinkable, and sure plans for the future. Christ is coming back and the curse of sin will be no more. And we can know, not just think, not just believe, but we can know that God's plans and purposes will all be fulfilled because he's sovereign over time and history. His plans will not, indeed they cannot, be thwarted. Our God is sovereign over history from beginning to end and everything in between. And that's why we can be confident that God, and only our God, is able to cause all things Every hardship you face in life, every circumstance we experience in life to work for his glory and by God's grace and wisdom for our growth in godliness. And thus, like Joseph and like every saint, we need not fear death. Oh no, we, 
We need not fear death. That's an enemy that's been defeated. Instead, instead we look to him and we live for the glory of him who defeated death and who reigns sovereign over history. The one who was and is and is to come. And as we consider these things and the glory of these things, as we anticipate how amazing that day will be, our hearts cry out, amen. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our great Father, we thank you for your word. Father, as we consider the horrible nature of sin and the catastrophic nature of sin as it entered into creation 47 chapters ago, we're in awe at the way that your plans are unfolding just as you planned. We're in awe of the fact that even the evil intentions of man don't stop your will from going forward. Ultimately, Lord, we remember that your will is unthwartable. And who can say unto you, what have you done? Because everything is yours. Everything. You alone, God, are sovereign over time and history, even over the evil in men's hearts. You can use it for good. And we're in awe because we would never, in our wisdom, think that that was something even possible. So thank you, Lord, for showing us in your word how great you are how sovereign you are. And Lord, we confess to you our own sin. Lord, forbid us from from downplaying it or from minimizing it, from thinking more lightly about it than, than you do. Forbid us from doing that. Lord, we confess to you that This is something that we struggle with every day. But we thank you for your promises. For the promise that if we will confess, you are faithful and righteous to cleanse us. To take our sin away from us and to actually put it on your own son. Who was crushed for our iniquities. Who bore our sin and shame who took it all upon himself in order that we could be presented before you as righteous, as as righteous as Christ himself is. The greatness of your love, Father, the greatness of your mercy, we pray that it would transform our hearts 
that it would change our desires, that it would change our affections, the things that we strive for. And we pray that you would continue to work in us until the day when the last enemy comes for us or until Christ returns. But if he should tarry, Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us in the likeness of your Son, that Christ would be glorified in our lives, that our lives would not be about ourselves, but that our lives would be lived in your presence, under your authority, for the glory of Christ. Thank you for this study. Thank you for a greater, a higher, a deeper view of your sovereignty over time and history. And we pray that it would teach us to live for the right things, that it would guide us, that we would trust in it and seek refuge in it in hard times, knowing that you are with us. And it's all because of the work of Christ to take our sin away. So teach us to live as people who have been redeemed. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.